Christy O'Connor, second to the 18th. Welcome to episode 53 of the Three Off The Tee podcast and we're joined on the line to do this Masters review on, on the Monday, the day after the final round of the 2021 Masters with my good pal and co-host Ian St. John. Good evening, Ian. How are you? Good evening, Harry. Good evening. Yeah, all good now. Uh, just um, digesting everything from the last three or four days, but uh, yeah, all good now. Good, good. And as always, for our majors, uh, delighted to be joined also by Greg Allen, RTE's golf correspondent. Greg, you had a, a late couple of nights, I'm sure, over the weekend, a weather delay on Saturday, and then late enough finish last night and get all of your all of your work done for the, for the early morning news bulletins, but um, I'm sure you enjoyed Masters Week just as much as myself and Ian. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, it didn't feel like a, a real Masters last November, I have to say. It felt like a Masters that was being played in November, if, that's, if you can understand what I mean. This one felt like a real Masters, and I'm not diminishing what just Dustin Johnson did, by the way. I'm just speaking from a particularly personal sense, because... This was the first Masters in April that I haven't been on site since 1998. And to actually see the Masters on television, how brilliantly it's covered, how much information you have that I actually don't have when I'm on site, which I think is an extraordinary thing that I almost had more information on site uh, or, or at home here because I was hearing all of the commentary on the television. I was not, not so much reading everything any more than I would if I was on site in Augusta, but I had a bit more space to read because I wasn't out on the golf course in Augusta. Now, every single time I want to be out on the golf course in Augusta, sampling that atmosphere, feeling the grass under, under my feet. As you well know, Harry, it's an extraordinary privilege. So I really missed the privilege. I really, really missed being on site. And uh, I was very happy to still be covering the Masters, albeit from home. But my goodness, I, I really have appreciate, I really appreciate now what maybe I never took it for granted, but I certainly really, really, really appreciate now having had 21 Masters under my belt on site and I just want to get back there next year. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine, Greg, 100%. Uh, on that point of, of coverage and not to put a negative on it, but it's funny you, you dip into social media as we all do over the weekend and a lot of avid golf fans get hugely frustrated by the lack of early coverage maybe and that first hour or hour and a half of the coverage which is a, a bit of a dead zone and it's it's not the broadcaster's fault uh, sky here in, in Great Britain and Ireland. They're only getting a feed of what they're getting and as we know over the years up until not that long ago we used to only see 
coverage of the back nine in Augusta. But you'd wonder, I suppose, in the times that we live in, um, you know, the, the desire and the need and, and the, you know, the hunger for people to have it all and see it all. I, I wonder, will it change and, and will we actually get to see that little bit more and a little bit earlier, I suppose? I'm, I'm definitely not the person to ask about that because <laughs> um, this is my first time, as I said, kind of seeing what you don't see. But the thing is that um, the Masters app is, is probably one of the greatest apps ever invented. You can see every shot of every single player. You know, it's just amazing. And, and anybody who hasn't downloaded the Masters app for the week, you were, I think, really missing a part of the experience. So I, I, it being the first time in more than 20 years that I've had to see the TV coverage and see how diminished the TV coverage is, um, I probably do sense the frustration. But at the same time, and I don't understand why they do it, but at the same time, I think as the years will go on, they, they may relax a little bit more and let us see more of the Masters on television. But the Masters app is amazing. Yeah, it truly is. Uh, Ian, what was your thoughts? I'm sure you were on the app and, and one eye on the app and the other eye on the telly kind of nearly every night. You're following yeah, your own players. Just, uh, yeah, I echo really what Greg was saying. I, I couldn't get over it. I mean, yesterday morning, um, and, I, and I didn't follow for the first two days. I had the app and I've just been flicking through. But um, as Greg said, you can go through every shot of every player um, for the whole uh, 72 holes. I, I just thought that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and uh, yeah, I think some of the, the drone footage that they had, I, I, I don't, maybe I, I missed it the last time or maybe I missed in recent years, but certainly um, it was my first time seeing a lot of the, the footage that they have where the, you know, the drones obviously went up over the, uh, the Augusta National uh, how, uh, Clubhouse and you were able to look at a, no, a few of the other houses that were on the property. Something I'd never seen apart from maybe when, unfortunately, when Rory hit that snap hook on, what was it, 2011 into the, the trees on 10, you saw there was a house there. I'd never seen a house. Obviously, I've never <laughs> been there, but you know what I mean? So it, yeah. it, was, it was just amazing to see that. Uh, and you, I think looking at uh, drone footage of the 14th as well, and everyone talks and no doubt you and, uh, and and Greg would know about the 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 undulations of that course and how and obviously how early it is. But uh, looking at the drone footage of the fourteenth, I, I really was shocked at how um, how much different it was in my mind compared to the reality. Uh, that really was shocking. The bunkerless fourteenth, yeah, it's yeah, an interesting yeah. hole. It it doesn't get enough credit. It's it's got its uh, it has its own challenges, especially around the green. Um, yeah, I. I think that uh you know maybe this drone footage is, is important to to show really how augusta is is this kind of work of art that has been crafted out of the old fruitlands nursery and how it's not a flat piece of land i mean everybody says about this not being a flat piece of land and the 18th hole is is, is quite a climb you know you'd find that climb on quite a few golf courses in dublin maybe in the foothills of the dublin mountains it's, it's that severe and it is a, a golf course which will benefit in terms of the viewer's appreciation of it by the drone footage because you're now seeing far more undulation, far more of uh, the challenge of Augusta, which hasn't really been apparent over the years because television has a tendency to flatten things out. And this drone footage is going to help that uh, impression of the golf course being much more undulating. It's not even undulating. I mean, the drop from the 10th the tee to the 10th green must be a hundred feet you know it's, it's a severe drop 
And again, on, on 11, it's another quite, not as severe a drop as on 10. It's, it's another fairly severe drop. So it's a, there's a big difference from where the 10th tee is located and where the 12th and 11th greens are located. Uh, it's quite a, you know, I'm not saying somewhere like Stackstown and Dublin might be not that far off uh, that, that, that undulation or that level of slope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think you're right, the drone footage, the handheld uh, cameras as well. I think they've really only kind of come uh, since the November Masters, and I think it was to give people a, a kind of a, a different sense and a different view. But again, you mentioned 14, another green, which for our listeners, and, and we would have seen it a bit, especially this week with that drone footage, the fifth, um, Greg, you've seen and, and walked out that side of the golf course as well, but the fifth is, a, is an unbelievably difficult hole now. We know they've extended that tee over the last couple of years. They didn't quite use the very back of that tee all four days. But the, the second shot into that fifth hole, like it's, it, I think it is. Is it the toughest hole? On the, does it come out as being the toughest hole on the golf course? But a lot of guys tend to maybe come up slightly short on that. And where the pin position was yesterday was literally up on top of an altar and like so tricky to try and uh, pitch from the front or land a second shot into that green. But um, the fifth has become a real beast of a hole, I suppose. Well, the, the fifth green, um, at the end of 495 yards, if they play it off the tips, you have arguably the toughest green on the golf course to negotiate. If you miss that green, yeah, you're probably better off in a bunker because you get more chance to put spin and, and stop the ball. But if you're chipping on that green, there are so many slopes and severe undulations and a big step sort of in the middle of it that at the end of 495 yards, and then you look at the, the fact that it's only four strokes to par, a par four, it's a cruelly difficult hole. Anytime you make par, not you make par or I make par, but anytime they make par there, it's, it's, it's a proper par, which you run to the next tee with and say, thanks very much. Right, let's get into the thick of it, guys. Um, I suppose let's wind back a little bit maybe and maybe only so far as to, to Saturday night. And I, I'd like to get your thoughts on what did you think of the leaderboard Saturday night heading into Sunday? Did you think a four-shot lead was going to be enough? Obviously, we know there was four guys there behind all on seven under par. But what were your thoughts maybe going into Sunday? And, and did you feel Matsuyama was a guy that was going to get it done? Greg? Um I didn't think necessarily that Matsuyama would get it done. I thought that Schaufley being four behind and with his credentials and majors being pretty good in terms of being up there challenging, I think, six top six finishes in 11 majors prior to this one. And he's now got seven of those um, in 12 majors. So it, it's, it's a very good record. I think he's been top three now in three four times in majors. Uh, I think it was a severe test for Schauflate, which he didn't pass. He, he made mistakes on the front nine, which almost blew him out of it. Then he made the four birdies in a row in the back nine. And as soon as he was in a position to win the Masters, two behind with three holes to play, where a lot of things can happen. With that pin position on, on 16, you can have a hole in one or you can have a double bogey or a triple bogey, as Schauflate had. Uh, 17, as we know, is, is a difficult hole, not as difficult as, as it used to be since the removal of the Eisenhower tree. And 18 is 18. It's just uh, an extraordinarily uh, challenging final hole where you do have birdies occasionally, but can so easily throw up bogeys. So with Schauffele getting to within two of the lead on, uh, on Sunday, um, I thought he had a great chance. 
And then he, he did something he's never done before in a major championship and taken a triple pokey. And that just shows the difference from being a pursuer, four shots, five shots off the lead, to suddenly having a chance with, within two of the lead. And he didn't measure up to it. And I think it's going to be a big moment for Schaufley to overcome in his career the fact that he had a chance against a player who was clearly very nervous. Matsuyama began to show those nerves up, you know, with that adrenaline-filled um, iron shot into 15, which was a brilliant shot. But the nerves generated that adrenaline, which made the ball travel 260 yards rather than 227 yards. So Schaufler had a great chance and he didn't, didn't walk through the open door to at least, you know, with that pin position on 16, he's got to be thinking birdie. He's got to be thinking 10 foot inside 10 feet with a, with a chance of birdie uh, because it is so accessible. If you hit that tee shot with about an eight iron, I think is required. He had nine uh, onto that slope and bring it back. And the fact is that he didn't measure up to it. So I, I was very disappointed in Shelfley. I was uh, amazed that Jordan Spieth was a factor at all in, in the Masters because of the way he was playing. He wasn't as sharp as he was in Texas, I don't think, the previous week. And yet there he was tied for third. And I thought it was an, a, an amazingly good illustration of the fact that Jordan Spieth is back. That's his fifth top four finish of the year. There's one victory in there. You're talking about a player who was lost at the end of 2020, ranked 92nd in the world. Uh, and now, now clearly Jordan Spieth is back, but not quite back enough to win this Masters. So Hideki Matsuyama on Thursday, sorry, on, on Saturday with the four-stroke lead. I didn't think he'd do it, but after the wobble on the first, what he did after that was hugely impressive. And it reminded me of Shane Lowry taking bogey in the first in Portrush. And then I think Shane birdied three of the next six holes. And I think exactly similar to that, Hideki Matsuyama bogeyed the first. And by the time he got to the turn, he had birdied three of the next eight holes. And he had a bit of cushion in the end. The one-stroke lead didn't flatter him. It was a better victory than his one-stroke victory in the end. Yeah, it was very impressive after that slightly shaky start on the first. Ian, your thoughts? Um, Greg put it so well there, like to, to see Xander, you know, have such a bad run of three holes early in the front nine and then get it all back with four in a row. That shot into 16 really was a shocker. And Greg mentioned it was a nine iron. I wasn't quite sure what club it was. I saw a replay of it this evening. It didn't look to me as if it was a, a poor strike or a, or a miss hit. I think it was a, a wrong club. And I can't even say it was necessarily on a wrong line. It was a direct line to the hole, but looked like just to be a complete wrong club at the wrong time. But that, that was such a shame because we were really starting to get to squeaky, squeaky time as such, weren't we? We were. And I suppose if we focus on the champion um, in Hideki, I mean, he's six tour tour wins and you know he's won the memorial in 2014 the waste management back to back and then uh, i think it's two other world golf championships so these aren't your run-of-the-mill events you know they're big events he's been in three playoffs he's won all three okay we could start you know going into the ifs and buts of uh, of these events and you know yes you can make it make a story for how they've you know helped him when he came down uh, to the on the line on sunday um I, I, I suppose, look, listen to the, the commentary in that, and the two of you, I'd like to get your, your input on this, and everyone has an opinion. But he was heavily criticised, and Hideki we're talking about here, on 15 with his second shot for going for the green. Um, now, my opinion, again, and I, again, you'll know even more than, than I would, but 
I thought that, like, even if he was to lay up and pitch onto that green, you're going in off a downhill lie to a green that's what, 10 feet above you. There's still no guarantee of you getting it on the green with all the pressure in the world. And maybe, okay, he was fueled up and that second shot did obviously go too far. Maybe just needs to hit one club less. But I felt it was probably the right choice of shot at the time, even though it did finish up in the water. Uh, look, it's hard to know, Ian. If we wind back two holes previously, you know, he went for it on 13 out of that first cut. I was kind of questioning it in my own mind at the time. But while I'm not sure, I think he might have had a had he a five-shot lead at that stage on 13. But I, I, I kind of felt, look, OK, he maybe doesn't quite... You know the way sometimes players don't quite realise exactly where they are. And I didn't necessarily blame him going for that one. He had a bit of luck the way that the ball kind of careered into the bank and, and came back rather than going into the, the azaleas. But I thought as we move on to more holes and we get to 15, we're now really getting down to kind of managing this situation and getting it in, getting it done, getting it into the house. There's a four-shot lead standing over the second shot. Now, maybe mm. the class second shot that he hit in there the previous day to make Eagle, you know, yeah. is, is in his mind and, and gives confidence, obviously. I think he's a little bit further back distance-wise, but obviously caught that second shot really strong with a little bit of a kind of a, a draw or, or nearly borderline kind of hook on it. And looking at it again there today, like the, the, the way that it bounced and bounded forward, like he didn't carry the green by that much, but it bounded forward and you could very clearly see after one or two bounces that that's where it was, oh, it was gone. headed yeah. for the, you know, but look, it, it, it's hard to know. I thought, I thought he possibly would have considered it or should have been four ahead with four to play. Greg, what's what's your thoughts? We can all have we can all have different opinions on what, what he should or shouldn't do, I suppose. Well, firstly, he was 227 yards away from the flag. And, you know, he is such a brilliant iron player and he has normally very, very good control of his irons. But the situation he's in, he's nervous, he's got adrenaline flowing, it's coming towards the last few holes of the Masters when everybody knows that the pressure is on. He's got the weight of 126 million people in Japan waiting for their first men's major champion. Uh, and all of this, you know, could or possibly have been going through his mind to some degree. And he's looking at the options in, and he's thinking, I'm a great iron player, so why don't I take this on? All I have to do is land it on the green. And the worst that will happen is that it'll roll off down the hill to somewhere pretty difficult, possibly, but more than likely a place where I'll make par from. Uh, it takes out of the equation the famous shot that Stevy hit in 86 from a downhill slope with too much spin and in the water. Uh, Tigers put it in the water from there. Um, and, and, and countless other players have put it in the water with a wedge in their hands from that downslope on 15. And he may have just been taking that particular scenario out of the equation and would have been possibly happy to hit it over the green and chipping up backwards. The problem was that he hit it so well with the adrenaline fueled in his veins that he hit the downslope at the back of the green and that's where it got the shooting on bounce. He got a bit unlucky, but it was one of those shots where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So if he'd, went, if he'd gone for it and, uh, and did what he did, like in the end, he made bogey. It wasn't as you know, crucifyingly damaging as, as it might have been. And if he had put it in the water with his third from the front of the green, then you're staring seven or eight in the face. So, you know, I, I wouldn't second guess a player who knows his own game, who chooses a shot for the situation he's in because of the way he's feeling. 
And everybody who's commentating about this isn't in that position, isn't in that, you know, extremely almost oxygen deprived brain scenario because so many things are running through your brain. So what he did was what he thinks he knows how to do well, which is hit good mid irons. And he felt that it was the right shot. And what did he get wrong with that shot? He just hit it too well. What a mistake to make. He just got very heavily punished for making a perfect strike because the ball aim-wise was, was terrific. I thought he was unlucky to end up as he did because he caught the downslope. Had he landed it, pitched it on the green, it still would have landed probably a good 30 yards past, but I don't think it would have gone in the water because we saw countless balls hit the green and run down that slope and very few went in the water. He just pitched on the downslope, got that onward kicking bounce on a very firm golf course and he got unlucky. And that's my assessment of what was a shot that has been overanalyzed and I've probably just done that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, I thought his, I, in fairness to him, I thought his fourth shot was a class shot because you mentioned you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But like now the pressure is starting to ratchet up a little bit. You get down there, you know your ball is in the water, you drop out. But I thought that pitch there, we, we know it's either going to end up being short of the green um, absolute perfection or else in the water the far side and, and to be honest the shot that he played there was a pretty good shot for the moment that it was and it was the difference in as you said making a six or, or making it a hell of a lot worse I suppose so um, he tidied it up pretty well and as we know then Xander made a mess of the next one when, when really the game was on as we said Xander four in a row uh, on what was it, 12, 13, 14, and 15, I suppose. What else, guys? Um, Will, Will Zalatoris, yeah. Four Super. rounds under par, an amazing week, wasn't it? Yeah, well, like, I, I was just going through a few of the stats there as well, Larry. Like, he's played 15 events this season, and he's only missed one cut. He missed no cuts last year in, on the Corn Ferry. So, in 31 events, the last cut he missed was in August 2019. So, uh, this time last year, he was in 544th, I think, in the, the world rankings. Putter looks a little bit iffy every now and again, but um, a star in the making, perhaps? Yeah, I yeah, see Bernard I... Langer tweeted today to say, yeah, hugely enjoyed playing with him for the first two days, massively impressed. And Greg, you, you couldn't say much wrong about the guy. Um, his first Masters, we, we thought maybe he was... He was going to do it after, what is it, 42-year wait, I suppose, for, a, for a, a debutant to go and win a green jacket. But hugely impressive guy for 24 years of age. Oh, Malik is obviously extremely impressive by, by what he's done. He's only missed one cut, I think, since uh, his sixth place in the US Open. So he's played three majors. The last three majors he's played in, he's been sixth and second in two of them. And this is a player who the last time the Masters was played in April, 2019 was ranked about 1,400 and something in the world. So clearly, you know, he has this temporary uh, exemption on the, the PGA Tour because of how well he's played. Um, I'm not sure I would want to teach the way he plays. Is what he's, You're the PGA pros. Um, it all looks very mechanical. Almost everything looks quite mechanical and almost jerky. Uh, but he is a, clearly a, a proper athlete because he generates an awful lot of torque and power through his swing uh, from what looks like an almost upright position at the top of the backswing. It's, it's, uh, there's no question there's pure talent involved in, in what he is doing right now, uh, but you guys probably are much better than I am at analysing you know, the swing mechanics. Clearly, they're, they're very good at impact, uh, but I don't know. I, I, and it doesn't look as though it's going to go 
wrong because of his record of making so many cuts. Uh, so, you know, there's no question that Will Zalatoris, one stroke off the winning total in a Masters on his debut, is going to be a player to watch over the next while. I, I just wonder, is there longevity in that game? Especially the way he puts. I'm not, I'm not convinced about the way he puts, especially inside six feet. He seems to hope to, to, to put a really nice stroke uh, on with that long putter clasped to his forearm from around the 10 foot and, and further out range. But inside 10 feet, it looks a bit very yeah. short backswing, almost <laughs> Lucas Glover-esque from, yeah. you know, that little jabby thing that goes on inside 10 feet. Um, but, you know, there's no question that there's a huge talent there. You don't make all those cuts in a row without being a phenomenal ball striker. And that's what he is. He is a phenomenal ball striker. Yeah, Ian, what did you think on the technical side of things? I must admit, I kind of tend to just kind of, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe I don't delve too much into the technical. Yeah, you'd always have a look and see what a guy does or how how he maybe is unique. But I suppose, look, there's so many ways to get it done. And, and he was awfully impressive off the tee. God, he just seemed to get up um, slightly down the left wing and, and just rip it down there every time, you know, it was very impressive. Um, so what did you think? Did you, did you, yeah, I did suppose you look, the, the line from, I suppose as PJ professionals or what we were taught over, you know, 20, 30, 40 years was, um, you know, the, the ball only cares about impact. It doesn't matter where you are um, as long as you're there in impact. But I think now more than ever, and especially, especially in the last, I suppose, year, year and a half, it is how you get there. You know, and it is um, the sustainability of it. You know, we've spoken to a few people over the, on, on the podcast in, in recent months and, you know, they, they can't see how this kind of Bryson DeChambeau, you know, college system uh, swing that is out there at the moment is sustainable. It looks like it's going to be um, part of maybe, a, or equivalent to maybe a tennis career where you're done by 30, 31, because the body just cannot keep taking um, that amount of pressure. So, um, but again, we, we won't know that for the next, until what the next two or three years when we start seeing does do these swings um, stack up. But um, certainly at impact, it looks great. The positions all the way through um, look great. Um, so how he gets there looks great. Um, but it is um, it's sustainability, yeah. Yeah, interesting to see. Yeah, we'll give him we'll give him his chance on the other for sure. Let's flip further on down the leaderboard. We've mentioned Jordan's feet. We've obviously spoken about Xander, uh, John Ram, guys. Greg, what did you think? Uh, you know, three seventy twos, not doing a whole lot on level par. Eleven behind going out yesterday evening, and really gets it going on the front nine. Finished with a sixty six for tied fifth, but arguably with his start of birdie eagle and I think another birdie on four he kind of was the only guy really in the early coverage that was starting to make inroads into the leaders some of the other guys up higher on the leaderboard weren't really doing it but um, a decent decent show from John Ram after a slow enough start I suppose. Yeah John Ram is a curiosity um, uh, so many are, t- are telling me that John Ram is such a talent and he's going to win loads of majors. You know, he's been a pro for what, four years at least now. And while he's had good finishes in majors, has he ever been right in there in the last few, few holes of a major with a chance to win? I can't remember one. And yesterday was a shot to nothing, 66, brilliant round, no question about it. But when he teed off at the start of the day, 
from level par, he had no chance of winning. You know, he, he would have had to have shot a joint major championship record 62 to get into a playoff, which around Augusta, the way it was set up uh, yesterday or on Sunday, was, it was just not on. So I'm not going to dismiss his fine play. He had a, a, a wonderful life experience with the birth of his child, Kepa, uh, only the previous Saturday. And, you know, capping a wonderful eight days in his life, he's finished tied fifth in the Masters. Uh, but he had no chance of winning. And I'm not dismissing his round of 66, but I'm simply saying that you shoot around a 66 from point of level par. It's not like you go out with any sense of, you've slept well, in other words, on level par on Saturday night, because you're just going to go out on, on, on Sunday and hope you've got a chance of giving yourself a top 10 finish, a top five finish. And he gave himself a top five finish. And and I, I'm not being cruel here, but I would like it liken it to a lot of Rory's Masters finishes on Sunday, where he shot a good round with no pressure on and, and got himself a top six, top five finish. Uh, I'm a bit concerned that John Ram hasn't quite delivered in majors uh, for the talent that he is and for the player ranked where he is. And I'll go back to the November Masters on the eighth hole on Saturday, right up with the leaders, real chance of winning. And he basically tops a, a fairway wood into the trees left on the par five. And he never recovered. His game never recovered and he, he never was a factor from that point onwards. He runs hot. We've spoken about this before. I think he runs hot to the point where he is, he benefits from it to some degree. And then sometimes maybe he boils over. And we've spoken about this. I've certainly spoken about this. I like him. I think he's a brilliant character. We've seen him win two Irish Opens and he has been personable. And I would love him to be the next Seve in terms of the way the Irish public have endeared uh, you know, a Spanish golfer of great talent to, to their hearts. And of course, Jose Maria Fabel won the, the Irish Open in 1990 and would have, you know, a lot of affection for, for, for Spanish golfers. And I really want John Ram to be the player that he can be. He just hasn't been it yet in majors. That's my opinion. Ian, what do you think? He's still a very young guy. He has won, as Greg mentioned, two Irish Opens, has won plenty of other tournaments around the world. And surely he's a guy that's going to win majors. Yeah, well, just on the personal point of view, I mean, you and I, Harry, were down at the, the Irish Open there and Le Hinch um, on the Wednesday, when the Pro-Am Day, and we were right, we were inside the ropes, right at the tee box on that first hole, and every group that came through, the only, the only pro that came over and spoke to us was John Ram. And he stood there for, what, two, three minutes, chatted about his chances next week, last week, this week, however. Um, so... I, I suppose, like yourself, I suppose, like, like I, if there's any player out there I'd like to see win a major championship, it, it is it is John Ram. But, um, yeah, I, I can't remember in recent years of, of um, him being at the business end in, in any of the, the major championships. Yeah, but I think he will, guys. Um, we still have a few more this year. Anyhow, we'll be very interested to see how that all pans out. Hi, Pete Cowan here. You're listening to the Three Off The Tee podcast. Ian, let's move a little bit further down. Justin Rose obviously got off to that fantastic start on Thursday, two over after seven, nine under for his last uh, 11 holes and didn't really do a whole lot after that, but yet hung around in contention with level par Friday, level par Saturday. Did you ever truly feel as one of the guys in, in tied second going into Sunday's round, did you think he 
you think he was going to get it done or had a really live chance yesterday? I didn't think so, based on maybe the way he'd finished Friday and Saturday. Um, encouraged that he's back with Sean Foley. I thought that was a good move. Encouraged that, like, okay, it's a while now since he, he kind of abandoned that lucrative equipment deal with Han Ma. He's, I, I saw him with a, I think it was a 2017 maybe tailor-made M1 that he was playing with over the weekend, which I thought was kind of refreshing. Um, encouraged that sense. It's a Ryder Cup year. Um but he's only recently started working with Sean. The bits and pieces are beginning to come back into play like you had pre that kind of major um, a break from Sean and, and the equipment deal. So we don't know, um, but I certainly didn't think he was going to, I suppose, contend um, last night. But on Greg, one point, what? I'm just, an, I'm, and I know we'll, we'll get back to it on the Jordan Speed issue. Like we're coming now into a, a PGA championship at Kiwa Island. Um, and he now will have the opportunity to join those four or those five players that have won all four majors. Now, as much as we have spoken about Rory in the last five, six, seven years, I suppose, uh, coming into April and Augusta and him being the, uh, the next person to, to, to get into that group of, uh, of players, I, I think we really got to start looking at the fact that, okay, yes, it is coming up and obviously the chat will be around Jordan Speed, but Lads, it's hard to see really against him that knowing where he is right now. And and as Greg had said earlier on, he, he really is back. Yeah, I agree with you. It's funny when you say that. We I nearly had to kind of, you know, not not fully remind myself, but just chalk off the other three majors and say, yeah, 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 to those three. But the hype, I suppose, that surrounds Rory and the complete euphoria when it comes around to kind of all the majors, never mind, obviously, trying to win um, in Augusta to create his grand slam. It just doesn't seem to be around Jordan Speak. Is that possibly because he had the kind of fall uh, since 2017, I suppose, really? Um, or is it maybe there's just not not as much hype around Jordan Speak? But you're right, there, there will be. It will build up. I think the one thing that we love to see about Jordan Spieth, and, and he did lose it for a while, and then as he started to get his game back, he's an awesome putter. And we've spoken about it before. To win the biggest tournaments against the best players and with ever-evolving fields and, and new generations of golfers coming along, you know, the only way you're going to compete and win these things is be an awesome putter. And Jordan Street can hold them from absolutely everywhere. And it doesn't matter if they're for twos, threes, fours, fives, or sixes. He, he's, as good, he's as good from 20 feet for an eagle as he is for a triple bogey. Um, Greg, what do you think? Um, you know, he is back. Um, you know, Ian made the point and, and very well put. He, he has a chance to join that very, very elite group, doesn't he? Yeah, obviously he's going to be you know, looking at Kiowa Island with, uh, and licking his lips with the form that he's in. He probably has a few things that he has to sort out before he gets there because clearly he's not that happy with his long game. Although his ball striking statistics, especially over the first two days, were, were very good. Um, and I think Jordan Spieth, when you look at the way he played, the amount of mistakes he made, um, he had some terrible drivers. Uh, oh, I think it was one of them on the seventh the one that he clattered around the trees, that was a ninth, wasn't it? The, um, the, in one of the, the ninth, the opening sure. he was in the, in the trees on the yeah, ninth, he, I think, three days he, out of he was, four, yeah? He was, he was, that ball was heading 50 to 60 yards offline because the trees stopped it from going further offline and he was already 30 yards, 40 yards offline. So he still has 
that shot in his locker. He also has the bad left hand miss in his locker. But what we've seen from Jordan Speed since he started, you know, finding confidence again, and the 61 in Phoenix was a huge, huge endorsement of what we've known about Jordan Speed, the player that he was in 2014, 2015, and 2016, and to some degree up to his last major victory in 2017. The fact is that he, he might have brought his B game to Augusta and finished on seven under par, three shots off the winning total. I, know, I think only in the 68 in the second round that he looked like he was probably the player that we know he can be. And over the four rounds, he probably averaged uh, somewhere between A- and C- plus in his game over the four days. And yes, he was pretty much right there, um, admittedly, Matsuyama had to come back to him. So Jordan Spieth is back. I think there's no question about that. And he knows he's back. There's a swagger to him. He's, his relationship with Michael Greller, which he's been very loyal to, and Cameron Smith, his, uh, not Cameron Smith, but Cameron McCormick, his coach, his coach, which he's been very loyal to. That's all been vindicated now. And there's, the, there's a look about Jordan that he believes. And once he starts believing, we can think that he will be one of the top four favourites in Kiwa. And uh, if he wins there, he becomes that select member of the career Grand Slam club. Um, and I love and I love his demeanour. I love love the character that he is in the game and, and I wish him wish him well. Just a word on Justin Rose because obviously you were mentioning him there. You know, when you take out the nine under par stretch for 11 holes in the first round, he was three over par for the rest of the, what was it, four over par for the rest of the tournament, I think. So mm. he's got a long way to go. It's good that he's back with Sean Foley. He's world number... 40 going into the Masters. I didn't check his, his, his ranking just right now, but the fact that he was world number one 2016, world number 40, uh, 40, sorry, 41 rather, and 40 years of age, all of those are statistics that you've got to stop. You've got to hold back to see when that sort of momentum is, is, is coming towards you. So I think Foley, back as his coach, the performance that he showed at least for a glimpse of in that first round means that he's got another chance to get back among the top 20 and maybe become someone who is really respected again. Uh, I was just a bit disappointed that he looked at, I mean, that round on Saturday was so ragged towards the end and his, and his putting saved him and kept him in it. And uh, yesterday it just couldn't keep him in it anymore. And he shot 74 and he was never a factor. So he has, uh, he's got a bit of work to do, to get back to where he was, but I'm glad to see him at least, you know, up there again, uh, because I, I, I think he's one of the great stories of golf since he holds that pitch as an amateur in Royal Birkdale in 1998 in the Open as a 17-year-old to finish fourth and then miss the first 21 cuts of his pro career, then become world number one. He's a great character in the game and I'd love to see him come back for one last, you know, three or four years of, of good play. It's you bring it up, Greg, and it's it's very timely that you do. He's forty years of age, and and all the way back, as you said, to Barkdale. But I suppose performing at that level for that length of time, and I know in one way we see the likes of a Lee Westwood, but the Lee Westwoods of this world are are fairly rare. But like it's it's a tough, tough game at that level to perform for over twenty years, and. And, you know, we've seen it with others, you know, we're starting to see to a certain extent with the likes of Henrik Stenson, maybe to a certain extent with the likes of our own Graham McDowell. The game doesn't get a whole lot easier as you get into your 40s if you've been out there a long time. And I suppose that's the challenge, the challenge to kind of keep yourself up there, to reinvent yourself, to try and 
you know, beats father time, I suppose. It's it's not easy. And and I don't know if you have a view on that or maybe we'll we'll jump on to another another young guy who's twenty four years of age and I think deserves mention and I'd love to get your opinions on him guy uh, guys Robert McIntyre um seems to be a real deal player um we know obviously Ian we interviewed a former caddy of his on the podcast probably a year ago now and really Robert McIntyre's name was only really starting to come on a tick and fast basis around that time but he's had some rise hasn't he in fairness and uh seems to seems to have it all and have a great attitude and again has has time on his side, energy and 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 an appetite, I suppose, to um, scale up the world rankings. Yeah, well, he got that win as well under his belt, didn't he? I think that was at the end of last year, which was uh, which was needed, I think, for him to keep that kind of an upper curve. Um, seems to be a very, you know, player built built on confidence, um, and you know, I I. I look at him, I suppose, you're looking, trying to, to think, that, could he make the Ryder Cup team this year? A lot of work to be done between now and then. Um, the World Golf um, events, uh, you know, we've got the, I actually I actually did a stupid thing, and I'll tell you this. I went to the to put some money down for players the weekend, and I, I put money on McIntyre. Um, but for some reason, put it down for the USPGA instead of the Masters. So that was a bit of a mistake. But yeah, he's... <laughs> <laughs> but well, you're I, all right. You might yeah. you mightn't have he finished by twelfth, so maybe I know. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, I know, uh, but I was, yeah, I know, but I, I was getting a bit uh, I was getting a bit disappointed on Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. I saw him jumping up the leaderboard. Oh no! But um, yeah, no, no, no a very a very good talent, but a, a long way to go yet as well. A very good talent, very good ball strike, very good ball strike. And, I'd like and again, win. I'd, I'd like to see him win uh, a little bit more. I think it was the Aphrodite Hills tournament and. Cyprus that he won last year, you know, a pretty small event. Uh, won another event on the in the Middle East tour, the MENA tour, the MENA tour, um, and and obviously, you know, the sixth place in the Open Championship in Royal Portrush was an indicator of the fact that he's maybe a you know a big time player who who obviously showed at the Masters that on his Masters debut to finish tied twelfth that. Um, you know, there's there's no question that he has a fearlessness about him. I'd like to see him win a little bit more, maybe win a, a nice big European Tour event, uh, because there's no doubt about it, Bob McIntyre, the Scottish journalists are so excited about this. They've waited for a talent to come along to have a chance at being something like a Monty, because uh, they, like why we have been utterly spoiled with uh, Irish major championship performances for the last 13 years, in fact, for longer than 13 years, but we've had, what, 10 victories to celebrate. Uh, the Scottish journalists who who used to have lots of other things to celebrate between their Sandy Lyles and their uh, Colin Montgomery's, um, they've gone through a pretty rough time. So my Scottish journalism colleagues, um, I wish them well with Bob McIntyre because he seems like a great guy. And, uh, and, and, and that left-handed talent type of player that you see, as something about left-handers, they all, always look like they have some element of natural talent, more gifted even than your average right-handed uh, talented player. I just like the, the cut of his jib, as that, as that saying goes, so I, I wish him well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he comes across as a great guy, in fairness. Um, let's just jump on to Shane Lowry. Greg, your thoughts on Shane's week, tied 21st. Um, it's a pity I saw again following on the app last night. Um, he had a poor drive off the last into the trees and had to chop it out. And that bogey both cost him a 
cost them a few quid. Not that the money hugely matters, but um, cost them a few places and maybe a small few world ranking points. But good finish. It's best finish around Augusta and Fairness. Definitely everything's starting to move in the right direction since the Players' Championship. Yeah, I think Shane had a very important week um, because while he has shot a good round around Augusta before and had that tied 25th place last November, but as I keep saying, and, and I just the last week has shown us that last November's Masters, brilliant though it was to have a Masters in 2020, wasn't the Masters as we know, because it, it was soft and, and the course conditioning wasn't nearly you know, the way it was for the last week. But this was a, a proper Masters test and Shane passed it on so many levels. And uh, he was saying yesterday after his round that, you know, he's learned a huge amount. He's, he's got a respect about the place that he, he, he hasn't been playing it probably the way it should be played over the years because he is a shoot at the flag sort of player. And, and it comes very, very secondary to him to have to shoot into the middle of the green. As, as Nicholas said on 12, always aim over the bunker. Don't worry where the flag is. Always aim over the bunker. That's because that's the deepest part of the green. And he was saying that he now gets that. And the last week, you know, to finish level par in those conditions over the four rounds, have no round worse than a 73, you know, a couple of 72s and a 71, all apparently very steady stuff. But he made some, you know, pretty glaring errors. And he knows he did. Like he played the par fives poorly all week. And I think, you know, I think he's two under for the par fives. You've got to be better than two under for the par fives. You've got to be eight under for those par fives because all of them are comfortably reachable in two. So he knows, I think, that after this week, more than any other Masters performance that he's had, that he now gets what Augusta is about. And I'd say he's chomping at the bit to come back next year to give it a, to give it a go. Because now that he knows in his head what has to be done around Augusta, I think he has the game to win there. And certainly the game to be in contention come the back nine on Sunday. After that, as we saw yesterday with Hideki, bogeying three of the last four holes to win by one, the back nine on Sunday is far more than simply a golf challenge. It's it's between the ears challenge. Yeah, I, I read all right. I did see where he said uh, that he had learned a hell of a lot and, and he made some glaring errors. I was kind of wondering, you know, he said he made some, I think he he, he actually said silly or stupid decisions. And I, I kind of wondered were they maybe tactical decisions or taking on shots at certain times? Uh, yesterday when he absolutely had a bit of momentum going, that three putt on nine was a, a real disappointment. I think on the live TV coverage, they showed his second shot into the green. It fed back down off the slope to pin high to about 15 feet. And they showed the putt and he ran it about maybe two, two and a half feet by. It was a real good effort, just missed on the low side. And funny enough, we didn't see the return, what I call nearly tap in, even though two and a half foot is never a tap in in Augusta. But we missed that and I saw it on the app and unfortunately, he missed that one, and that was a, a, a showstopper to a certain extent to bogey nine. And then we did see his mishap on 12, hitting it in the water there on 12. But in fairness, got an up and down for his bogey. So I don't know, Greg, you probably interviewed him or chatted with him maybe a couple of times during the week or read a bit more than I did. But you mentioned the power fives. What do you get the feel of? What, maybe were there some tactical errors as in going at pins and stuff like that and not being that patient? Yeah, I didn't overanalyze that. I'm not going to pretend I did. He just didn't play the par five as well. And by his own admission, he didn't play the par five as well. The fact is, like, uh, the second hole is a downhill 575-yard par five. You hit a good drive on the second, you're going in with a six iron, five iron, 
maybe off a downslope, but there's nothing easy about the shot. But he says off the tee that he doesn't like the way the hole shapes for him. You know, you got to get past that. You've got to find a way of clearing your mind and, and, you know, whether you aim it at the right hand bunker and draw it back or whatever you have to do. And that's something that he has to get his head around. The, it, this is the brilliance of Augusta and its design. There are no, there's, there's no drive where you just whack it down there as you do week in, week out in the PGA Tour. Every single hole offers you options off the tee and makes you have, you know, with more than one option, makes you think. It's not just whale away, you know, launch it with 2,200 RPM, you know, 150 feet in the air and see it land. So you, you've got to get the headspace right. And Shane might just have discovered over the last four days that that might be one of the most important things to have going into Augusta. But you obviously have to have game as well. Um, so, you know, playing the par fives and two under, what was it Zach Johnson did in, in 2007? Played them in 11 under, laying up on all of the par fives? I'm sorry, I do think Shane will benefit from this big time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As well. You he, must think like he is on his way to Harbortown as well for the RBC Heritage this week, and it's a place where he's played well. Um, and, I, you know, in recent, uh, in recent years, and I, I think he would be a, a good bet for, for you. You're, you're considering reinvesting some of your funds or your <laughs> winnings from this week, Ian, are you? I am, I am. Thankfully, we'll, we'll, uh, Jor- Jordan Speed and his each way helped me. Good man. No, we'll get yeah. to those in a second. And just before we get to our pick, Ian, uh, talk to us about the course setup. Like, there's no doubt Augusta is an absolute beaut as regards a, a major championship venue. We're obviously so familiar with it because it stays there every year, obviously. But like the fact that there was only one guy in the world's top 10 in the top 10 heading out there last night, I don't think in any way diminished the fact uh, of what we were watching. The fact that the likes of the Brysons or the Brooks or the Rory or these guys who we haven't really mentioned because obviously they missed the cut, but it's it's an amazing golf course, really. Um, I was delighted to see how firm and fast it played on Thursday. Slightly disappointed to see that maybe they did kind of uh, roll back a little bit and maybe give it a bit of water on Thursday night going into Friday because... There was at times, guys, I thought on Thursday's coverage where the greens were kind of getting close to the edge. Um, but God, that's, you know, and there's so many. Olazabel, a legend of Augusta, uh, was interviewed there last night and, and he absolutely loved to see it playing firm and fast. He said he remembered it of the Augusta of the 80s and 90s. And, and a lot of guys, obviously, look, November was very soft, but I think a lot of them, like to see it playing firm and fast and the challenge that that brings. Yeah, I, I, I like the firm and fast conditions. There's no other way to play Augusta. It's been a while since it's played as authentically as, as that. And, you know, it's obviously going to suit a player like Jose Maria Olatabal at 55 years of age that runs fast because, you know, he gets more out of his, out of his drives, which are going to be much shorter than most of the, the players in the field uh, and thereby his creativity comes into play much more so as well because firm and fast means greens missed uh, i always remember the statistic about ola Thabel when he won in 1999 that you know he he shot around a 70 but only had eight greens in regulation so firm and fast conditions are going to suit players like that i know it's the only way to play augusta that's why they were one of the first if not the first 
golf course in, in, in America or anywhere in the world, possibly, to have the sub-air system so that they could control the firmness of the golf course just so long as it didn't deluge. And it did deluge last November uh, on, the, on the Thursday. So uh, they couldn't, no matter how much they ran the sub-air system, they couldn't pull all that moisture out of the ground. But they, the course is designed to be played hard and fast and firm. And it's what makes it, like when... Mackenzie and Bobby Jones designed Augusta. They had in their minds an inland links in, in Georgia. And that's what a lot of the shop values are, if not the look of the course is. Right, guys, we're going to wind it up, but let's uh, revisit our picks. Ian, you kick it off there and remind us all. I think the two of you actually went for very similar picks, but mm. let's just kind of uh, speak, let's Justin see how we did. Leonard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Justin Thomas, I think. Justin or Justin Thomas, Justin Thomas, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually thought Justin Thomas. I thought he was going to be in there on Saturday, but a very bad round fell away. Uh, yeah, but uh, Jordan, thankfully, E Trey Best kind of uh, saved the blushes. Very good. Yeah, Greg, uh, Justin Thomas. We won't dwell on it too long. But what a shocker! His third shot into thirteen, and from that moment on, he was uh, he was never a factor. And funny enough. Standing over that third shot on four under par, looking to go five, he was starting to really get into it. Yeah, and, and Justin Thomas had a great chance until that disaster, and it was a disaster. You could see by his body language after it, walking off the green with uh, with an eight, he knew it was over. He just he was he was that bit. He wasn't too far back, but I think he went from four under to one under in one hole, and and the momentum loss as well as the fact that you've lost that lead against a player who's got hot and Matsuyama got really hot. This is one thing we didn't perhaps discuss enough about, I think, is the, the rain delay on Saturday and what it did for Matsuyama. He went to his car and played some video games and came back out and he <laughs> played the last eight holes in six under. And it was, it was the emblem of the Masters, that particular eight hole stretch, because it gave him the four stroke lead, which he admirably defended, even though he bogeyed the first on Sunday. But that eight holes, that rain delay, that rain delay may have been the most significant factor in the Masters because not only did it break the momentum of some players and some came out and the greens were slower and people started leaving putts way short because the moisture in the ground. He didn't. He got it. He adapted. And when you do all of those things with a rain delay and you don't start saying, oh, the rain delay, you know, scuppered my chances, bloody, bloody, blah. You know, that was the turning point. Yeah, it was. I thought his second shot into 11 was an awesome shot. Uh, obviously, we said we, we mentioned his second shot into 15, but you're right. The, guy, the amount of guys that hit the 13th green and two and went behind that flag, yes, it's downhill, but it was slow downhill, funny enough. And the amount of them that three putted 13 for par was, was amazing. But uh, yeah, no, look, fantastic week. My picks uh, weren't quite as good as yours, lads, unfortunately. Um, my outsider in world number 16 Matthew Fitzpatrick solid didn't putt as well as he usually does but finished in a tie for 34th and uh, Louis ever consistent Louis I think Louis finished about 27th or 28th poor record on the par fives all week actually uh, could have been a little bit better but two guys inside the top 40 at huge odds huge odds they were so I'm quite happy I've collected a small few small few quid this week but uh We'll, we'll rock on, lads. We'll look forward to the next major, which is only a month away. You're not, you're not going to dwell on my two picks, Jordan Spieth and Cameron Smith, with uh, places 1 to 11 paying in many outlets. Uh, would have, um, ah, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to spend it all in the one, the one toy shop. I, 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 can't, I honestly Ty, can't Ty remember. Tag Cameron Smith and 
tied third for Jordan Spieth. Not going to crow about it. I promise no, you, I'm not no, going to crow no. about it. And, and, I, and I think on that note, no, really, Ian, have you anything to say? <laughs> No, one, one last thing. I don't know if you've seen it, lads. Is um, some guy got a picture of uh, Hideki Matsuyama at the airport this morning in Atlanta, and Brilliant. he was playing yeah. video games. And I think the the yeah, the green jacket was just draped over a seat. There he is getting a commercial flight going somewhere. No private jet. I just thought it was. Um, I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, what what, what he has done for golf, we really we really aren't feeling it here, but. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, 126 million Japanese people are celebrating, well, well, those of those, the 126 who play golf. And there are 9.3 million registered golfers in, in Japan. And I'm not wow. so sure you can double that number, but you know those three-tier driving ranges in Tokyo, a lot of those players never play, don't play very much golf course golf. Uh, they just hit golf balls into the blue yonder. And golf is a huge sport in Japan. Uh, he is uh, many times has been quoted before a rock star in Japan, even though he doesn't have a rock star personality. He's a very quiet guy, but he is huge in Japan. There is a, an interview that was done with him by a journalist, uh, an American journalist uh, in a restaurant in Japan, and they cleared the restaurant for the two of them. So this is the level of, of, of impact this is going to make. The first major golf championship win by a Japanese player is is absolutely massive uh, for the sport in the Far East. And what I like about how the Masters have contributed to this is Hideki Matsuyama qualified for the 2011 Masters by winning an Asian Masters event run by Augusta. And they gave the winner of that event a qualifying spot in the Masters. He played in the Masters in 2011 and won the low amateur, shooting a 68 along the way on Saturday, I think it was. And he, he announced his, 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 his talent at that point. And 10 years after 2011, he ends up with the green jacket. Um, so there he was, the low amateur winner in the 2011 Masters when Rory McIlroy had a four-shot lead going into the final round and didn't do it. And there was Matsuyama 10 years later with a four-shot lead entering the final round, and he did it. Uh, and it's going to be massive for the sport in the Far East. Yeah, especially, with the, Olympics, especially with the Olympics on the horizon. Yeah. He might light the flame. He might light the flame at the Olympic Games. There's that, there's, that's, what they're, that's what they're talking about. He's, he's that big an icon, and even more so now. That green jacket holds huge currency with the golf-mad public of Japan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, great tale in which to finish, guys. Huge thanks for your time, Greg, as always. Uh, Ian, uh, thanks a million. Enjoy the week and enjoy the chat. I'll uh, revisit my picks going forward. I need to start really up in my game to catch you boys. But look, that's all part of the fun as well, you know? Thanks, so lads. When you, Take when care, you have it, you have it, Greg. Cheers, Ian. Cheers, Cheers lads. Cheers. Christy O'Connor, second to the 18th. Lovely flight. It's a shame it's 25 hours left. I'm gonna leave y'all in one thought and I'm gonna leave. I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm gonna tell you. Oh, would you look at that? It's a foreigner, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
Touch of class, baby. Touch of class. Touch of class.